0: Well, if you have your Bibles, once again, I invite you to turn with me to the first book in the New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. If you're a guest for this, we're working uh, verse by verse through this section of the Gospel of Matthew. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1048. And we're going to begin reading in verse 16. I want to speak for a few minutes this morning on this subject, a man with a question. And while you're finding your place there, I want to teach you something about preaching. Uh, There are different genres of scripture in the Bible, and it is the preacher's job to identify the genre of the passage and then write the sermon accordingly so that the text Drives the sermon. In other words, it's not the preacher's responsibility to think of a sermon in his mind and then find a text that works with it. It's the exact opposite. He is to go to the text, and the text is to inform and drive the sermon. And so when you come to different genres of scripture, it means that the sermon should feel different. And this morning, if I've done my job properly, this sermon should feel different. We're reading a story, if you will, an account of a man with a question as he comes to Jesus. And it's my job to lead you through the storyline and help explain it to you so you understand what is happening and let the text drive the sermon. And so it should hopefully feel different to you than previous sermons. We'll see at the end of our time together, won't we? Matthew chapter 19, verse 16. And this is what the Word of God says. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And if you would enter life... Keep the commandments. And he said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, All these I have kept. What do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, If you would be perfect, Go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. And when the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. After being tested by the Pharisees regarding marriage, divorce, and remarriage, as well as blessing the children who were brought to him, a man with a question came to Jesus now this was no ordinary man and this was no ordinary question and yet this man and this question represent everyone who has ever asked how they can know for sure that when they die they will go to heaven and like many of us who have asked this question This man, too, misunderstood what was required to enter the kingdom of heaven. J.C. Ryle speaks of the importance of this man in his question, saying, Like every conversation recorded in the Gospels between our Lord and an individual, it deserves special attention. Salvation is an individual business, and everyone who wishes to be saved must have private dealings with Christ about his own soul. And so it is with this man and his question. And through this man and his question, we learn the cost of following Jesus and entering the kingdom of heaven. Would you notice with me, first of all, in verse 16, the desire of the man? Matthew says, and behold, a man came up to him saying, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? Now, Matthew begins this passage with a word that he uses periodically to mark significant events in the life and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you'll see it at the outset of verse 16. It's the word behold. And it calls the reader, and in this case, the listener, to wake up And pay attention. Something unexpected, something significant is about to take place in the text. So wake up, pay attention, and don't miss it. And then, after using that word, Matthew goes on to tell us that a man with a question came to Jesus. And in verse 20, Matthew describes this man as young, and Luke, in his parallel account, describes the man as an extremely rich ruler. That's why this passage is often referred to as the rich, young ruler. Now, this man was probably a ruler in the synagogue, which would have been a very honored position for someone to hold at such a young age. He was wealthy, he was prominent, he was influential, and this man, at a young age, seemed to have it all. And yet, as Matthew reveals, this man, deep inside his soul, knew that there was something missing in his life. And so he approached Jesus with a question, wanting to know how he could obtain eternal life. Mark, in his parallel account of this passage, describes the urgency of this man's unusual approach to Jesus. And in Mark chapter 10, in verse 17, this is how Mark described the encounter. And as he was setting out on his journey, speaking of Jesus, listen to the text. A man ran up And knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Can't you just picture it? Jesus has just blessed all of the little children. And Matthew says he went away from the crowds and he began to walk to the next region to carry on his ministry. And out of nowhere, this young, extremely rich, influential man ran up behind him, stopped him, bowed down before him in the dirt and began to ask him a question. He approached Jesus personally and publicly And without presumption, he was oblivious to what the crowd surrounding Jesus would think of his actions. He was willing to risk the loss of his reputation as a religiously devout and influential and specially favored man. And the Bible says that as he knelt in the dirt before Jesus, he asked a sincere question. Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And by addressing Jesus as teacher, the young man acknowledged Him to be a respected rabbi, to be a man who was an authority on the Old Testament, to be a teacher of divine truth. And Mark and Luke, as they describe this encounter in this question, they report that the man also called Jesus good. But as you'll see in his interaction with Jesus... There is no reason for us to believe that he considered Jesus to be the Messiah and the Son of God. He simply considered Jesus to be a very statured rabbi and respected teacher. Now it is clear from his question that in spite of his position in society, in spite of his morality, and in spite of his religion, listen carefully to me friends, he lacked true spiritual hope. And he lacked assurance. There was something missing in his life. And additionally, his question suggests that he had a specific deed in mind that he could do that would earn the favor of God and give him eternal life. He thought he could do something to gain eternal life. And the phrase eternal life that Matthew uses in this verse is the first time that this phrase appears in the Gospel of Matthew. It is synonymous with other expressions that Matthew has used. For instance, entering the kingdom of heaven in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 20, and the phrase being saved in Matthew chapter 19 verses 25 to 26. And this phrase, eternal life, always refers primarily to a quality of life rather than a quantity of life. And Matthew uses it to describe the inheritance that people have when they know Christ as their Savior. I found John MacArthur's definition of this phrase, eternal life, helpful. He says, eternal life is first of all a quality of existence. It's the divinely endowed ability to be alive to God and to be alive to the things of God. The Jews saw it as that which fills the heart with hope of life after death. The unsaved person is spiritually alive only to sin. But when he receives Christ as Lord and Savior, he becomes alive to God and alive to his righteousness. And that is the essence of eternal life. It is the life of God's own Son living inside of us, and that is what this man wanted. He wanted the spiritual hope of life after death. He wanted assurance that when his life ended on earth, it would live in heaven. And so he comes to Jesus with this question. How do I obtain eternal life. And friends, I would submit to you this morning, this is the most important question that any of us could ever ask. How can I get eternal life? This man came seeking the most important thing, life after death and eternity with God. And notice in the text, he came to the only one who could speak of this kind of life and to the only one who could give this kind of life. Jesus Christ, friends, is not only the way to eternal life. Jesus Christ himself is eternal life. It's what the Bible says of him. In 1 John chapter 5 and verse 11, John says this. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in his Son. And he will go on to say, "Who he who has the Son has life. And he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Because only eternal life is found in God's Son, Jesus Christ. John also says in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know Him who is true, and we are in Him who is true in His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Eternal life, what this man desired, what this man asked for, is only found in Jesus Christ. Let me say it to you this way, friends. There is no life apart from Jesus Christ. And if you're here today without Christ, you don't have life. And you object and you say, No, I do have life, Pastor. I'm sitting here taking in air. I'm breathing. My lungs are functioning. I've got a pulse. I'm hearing you speak. I'm saying to you, based on the authority of the Word of God in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, you're spiritually dead. You might have a pulse, but everything inside of you spiritually is dead. You're a corpse. Apart from Christ, you have no life. Notice also in the text that this man's question wrongly assumed that eternal life could be gained through good works, that somehow his good works could win the favor of God. It's the same thing that trips us up in our day. This man's question, though, obviously flawed, Displayed his fear of God. It displayed his respect and recognition of Jesus' authority. It displayed his own concern for his soul. And it displayed his belief in life after death. Look at the text. He knew he did not possess eternal life. And he was desperate. He was desperate to find a solution to his deeply felt need. When well, we not only see the desire of the man, we see in verse 17, the discovery of the man. And Matthew writes, and he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. Now notice what Jesus does in verse 17. He responds to the young man's question with a question of his own. Why do you ask me about what is good? And then Jesus challenges the superficial assumption that the man can somehow obtain eternal life by doing good deeds. And Jesus proclaims the reality that there is only one who is good. This man thought that goodness was found in good deeds. But Jesus declared to him, don't miss it in the text, goodness is only found in God. God. It is only found in God. It is not found in good works of any kind. Charles Price asks this question, what defines goodness? It is not some arbitrary standard defined by its consequences or by a general consensus. Goodness, he says, is defined by the character of God. That which is good is good because it is consistent with what God is. Equally, that which is bad is bad because it is inconsistent with what God is. God's moral character is the absolute by which everything else is measured. And that's why Jesus says to him, It's not about good deeds. There's only one who is good. And that is God. Now Jesus' response to him in verse 17 shattered his notion of being able to obtain a goodness that would give him eternal life. And I want to remind all of us this morning, friends, that only by understanding that God alone is good can you realize and understand that good works will never earn the favor of God in your life. Only God is. Is good and so what does Jesus do well look at verse 17 to further impress upon the young man both the high standard required by God and the absolute futility of seeking eternal life by his own merit Jesus tells him if you want eternal life keep the commandments if you want eternal life keep the commandments now doesn't that strike you as odd Why would Jesus make a statement like that? Only God is good. But if you really want eternal life, obey the Ten Commandments. Follow the law. Why would He do that? Because the Jews were taught all of their lives that the way into life was through obedience to God's commandments. Leviticus 18.5 clearly states this. In Leviticus 18.5, Moses writes, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. And so it was as if Jesus was saying to the man, You know what to do. Why are you coming to me and asking me this question about eternal life? I've not taught anything that is different than what has already been written in the law of Moses. You are a devout Jew. You know the law, and you know what the law requires. Why are you asking me this question? Keep the commandments. You say, this is still odd to me. I don't understand why Jesus would say that. Well, let me clarify for you. Jesus is not teaching this man that good works can earn eternal life. How do you know that? Because the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah chapter 64 and verse 6, speaking of all of us, that we have all become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. Some translations say filthy rags. All of our good works, all of our good efforts, at the end of the day, God looks at them apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, and he says they're nothing but dirty shop rags. They are worthless. You are unclean. He goes on and he says, We all fade like a leaf in our iniquities. Like the wind take us away. Our iniquities drive us away. Our sin drives us away from God, not to God. And so our so-called good deeds can never earn favor in eternal life with God. So Jesus is not teaching a work salvation. Furthermore, Paul teaches us in Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 that salvation is clearly a gift of God's grace that is received by faith and not by works. You know the verses. For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one can boast. Eternal life will never be gained by your works. Eternal life will only be gained by Jesus' work on your behalf. Left up to yourselves, you are filthy rags. Well, you say, well, why? Why did Jesus associate, in verse 17, the only one who is good with keeping commandments? Ah! That's the question. Why did he do that? Well, the Ten Commandments were not given as an arbitrary set of rules for the people of Israel to follow. They were given to the people of Israel to reveal the character of God to them so they would know how to worship Him. These commandments taught Israel... And listen, they teach us what God is like, and they teach us what we are to be like, having been created in God's very image. And so when we take our lives and we examine them through the mirror of God's law, we come to the conclusion that the only goodness that qualifies us for eternal life must come from someone other than us. It must come from God. We must have God's righteousness imparted to our life. That is the only thing that qualifies us to have eternal life. When we examine our lives in the mirror of God's law, we see how far short we have fallen from God's character and God's standard through that examination. And friends, until you understand that you have no goodness on your own to present to God, you don't understand how desperately you need Christ. As long as you think that God can look at you and look at your good efforts to make you right with Him, you do not truly understand your condition before the holy God that we have sung to this morning. If we think we can enter eternity Without the goodness of the Lord Jesus Christ applied to our life, we do not understand our desperate need for Christ. And listen, we are deceived. We are deceived about our condition before God. And so in verse 17, Jesus was confronting this man to help him discover the truth about himself. He was essentially saying to the man, Look at the commandments and look at your life, and compare your life to the commandments, don't you see your deficiency? Don't you see your need for the goodness of God? When we not only see the desire of the man and the discovery of the man, in verses 18 to 20, we see the declaration of the man. Matthew says, and he said to him, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And the young man said to him, all of these I have kept. What do I still lack? Now, notice what happens in verse 18. In response to Jesus' instructions in verse 17 to keep the commandments, the man asks a second question. Okay, I'll bite. Which commandments? And Jesus, in verses 18 and 19, responds to his question by quoting five of the last six Ten Commandments. And he quotes them in this order. Commandment 6, Commandment 7, Commandment 8, Commandment 9, and then he jumps back to Commandment number 5. And then he concludes his answer by quoting Leviticus 19.18. And you say, well, what does all of this have in common? Well, all of the commandments that Jesus quoted to this man in verses 18 and 19, they have to do with the last half of the law, which emphasizes our responsibility in our personal relationships. Commandments 1 through 4 deal with our relationship to God. Commandments 5 to 10 deal with our relationships with other people. And then Jesus summarizes this second half of the law by quoting Leviticus 19.18, which says this, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And what Jesus was doing by referencing these commandments and quoting Leviticus 19.18 was showing that obedience to these commands expresses a love for your neighbor. And Jesus will go on to say in Matthew chapter 22, verses 39 to 40, how important loving your neighbor is. In Matthew chapter 22, Matthew records that a man comes up to him to test him and he says, Lord, what is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And when Jesus gave that answer, he quoted the first four commandments. And then he says in verses 39 and 40, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depends all of the law and all of the prophets. And Jesus quoted this and made reference to this. Because the man failed to realize how far short he came in his goodness. He failed to recognize the one to whom he spoke was himself God and the source of eternal life. And this man failed to see that these well-known commandments could never provide the life that he longed for. Jesus had told him, if you look at the text, if you keep all of these commandments, you'll have life. But Jesus was showing him this, to show him that no one is able to perfectly keep all of these commandments. Friends, look at the text. Jesus did not introduce the law to show this young man how to be saved. He introduced the law to this young man to show him that he needed to be saved. That's the difference. And that's what the Word of God does to you. It shows you yourself in a mirror in light of the character of God. Not so that you will work and do all of these things so you'll be more accepted, but so that you'll realize that you can't do any of it on your own and you'll never be accepted apart from God. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's it. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. God is showing this man his sin through the law. And that's what he's showing you and what he's showing me. But listen to the glorious grace and good news of the gospel that is found in Jesus Christ in the very next set of verses in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 24. Listen to it. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Do you see it? God shows you His character in the law, and He shows you His character in the law so you'll see your sin and your need for Him. But then, according to Paul, he reveals his righteousness apart from the law. How does he do that? Well, he does it, Paul says in verse 22, through faith in his Son, Jesus Christ, for all who believe. He shows you his righteousness, his goodness, his uprightness, everything that you are lacking in your life in and through his Son. And if you believe in His Son, you get all of that righteousness, all of that goodness, all of that holiness that you're lacking imparted to you. And he goes on and he says, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. And all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus. That's what Jesus is doing here. He's showing him his utter hopelessness apart from Christ. Oh, friends, don't you understand? That's why Jesus had to be born of a virgin. So that he could be born sinless. And that's why Jesus lived a perfect, sinless, spotless life. And he didn't just not sin. Listen, He perfectly obeyed the entire law. All of the commands that Jesus is telling this man to obey, Jesus obeyed them for this man. And He obeyed him for you. And so that when you look in the mirror of God's law and you see all the ways that you have failed God's law, you can also look beyond the law and see Christ who perfectly obeyed every single command that you could never obey and that I could never obey. And He was perfectly sinless and He was perfectly obedient and then He died the shameful, painful death of the cross in your place. The one who knew no sin became sin for you so that you could be the righteousness of God in Him. And when Jesus, in His sinless, spotless life, hung on that cross, God the Father poured out wrath and judgment for your sin and my sin and for the sin of the world on His sinless Son so that He could be, as Scripture says, the propitiation or the satisfaction of God's wrath for your sin. And He died for your sin. And He was put in a tomb and He rose from the grave and He ascended back to heaven testifying that He had defeated sin, death, hell, and the grave. And that He is the only, only mediator between God and man. That no one can come to the Father except through His Son. Good works will never get you to the Father. Only Jesus Christ. Christ will give you eternal life. Only him. Only him. And that's why Jesus had to die. And that's why you need Jesus. To satisfy the wrath of God for your sin. You're just like this man. I'm just like this man. We all know there's something missing in our life. In the quietness of the moments when we lay our head on the pillow, when we're struggling with a tragedy or a difficulty in life, we all know that apart from Christ, there is something missing in our lives. What do I have to do to get eternal life? What do I have to do to know where I'm going when I die? This man's question was your question. It's my question. It's everyone's question. And as verse 20 shows us, this man was completely blind to the condition of his soul. Do you see it? Look what he said to Jesus after Jesus quoted all of these commandments. All these things I've kept. I've kept them, Lord. I'm good. I'm perfect. I've not done any of these things wrong. Mark says in Mark chapter 10, verse 20, that the man said to Jesus, I've kept them all from my youth. Jesus, even when I was a teenager, I never disobeyed my parents. I kept them all. I always obeyed them with a good heart attitude exactly when they told me to do it. From my youth, Jesus, I have been perfect. I've kept them perfectly, Jesus, Jesus. He must have been absent in Matthew chapter 5 when Jesus preached His Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount? He said that there were deeper implications to the commandments. He said that if you become angry with your brother or sister in Christ, you're as guilty as if you murdered them. He said that if you have lust in your heart, towards someone else it's as if you're guilty of committing adultery he said that if you falsely accuse a brother in court or in the court of a public opinion you are guilty of bearing false witness against your brother this man was clearly absent that day for that sermon really You've never lusted. You've never committed adultery. Really, you've never said something untrue or bad about someone else. Really, you've never disobeyed your parents. Really, you've never coveted your neighbor's belongings. You've kept all of these things from your youth. No. This man was superficial. He was external. And he was man-oriented. He thought Because he hadn't physically committed adultery or murder, he was good. He thought because he hadn't physically stolen something from someone or blasphemed the Lord's name, he was good. And I say to you this morning, isn't it astonishing the levels at which we can deceive ourselves about our true condition before God? This man did. And yet, look at the text. You can't make this up, friends. You can't make it up. Look at the text. In spite of his claim to perfect obedience, he still senses that something is lacking, and so he asks him a third question. What do I still lack? Lord, I've kept them all. I've done what you've said. But there's still something missing. John MacArthur said the young ruler was aware of what he did not have and needed to receive, namely eternal life, but he was not willing to admit what he did have and needed to be rid of, his sin. This man had no hatred for sin that needed forgiving. He had no omission of a heart that needed cleansing. He wasn't looking for what God could do for him. He was looking still for what he could do for God. Not what God could do for him, but what he could do for God. He is just like us. He is just like people in our day and in our culture who believe that their own eternal destiny is in their own hands and that they can somehow do good things and that at the end of the day they hope that the good will outweigh the bad and that they will have done enough and that God will accept them and receive them into His kingdom. This man wanted to know what actions he could do. This man wanted another formula. This man wanted another religious ceremony. This man wanted another rite. This man wanted to do, do, do. But he did not want to acknowledge who he was and what he was. And Jesus didn't point this man to the law so that he could justify himself. He pointed the man to the law so that he could see his need for Jesus and so that Jesus could justify him. And he missed it. So we see the desire of the man and the discovery of the man and the declaration of the man. And finally, in verses 21 and 22, we see the disbelief of the man. Look at what Jesus does in verse 21. In response to the young man's claim of perfection, Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, come and follow me. I love how Mark described Jesus' final response to the man. Listen to it. Mark 10:21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. He loved him. He had compassion upon him. The same compassion he has upon you and me when he sees us in our sin. And he sees us trying to deal with our sin in our own efforts. He expresses his love and compassion to us, and he tells us the truth just like he told this man. And notice what Jesus says to him first. Look at the text. If you would be perfect. Oh, it's such a wordplay. Don't you see it in the text? This man said that he had perfectly kept the law. And Jesus is saying to him, no, you haven't. But if you want to be perfect, this is what you've got to do. And the word "perfect" that he uses here occurs two other times in the Gospel of Matthew, and they both occur in the same verse in Matthew chapter five and verse 48, which is a summary of Jesus' preaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And at the end of chapter five, Jesus says this in Matthew 5:48, "Therefore you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect." This is the standard. You want heaven? You want eternal life? You want assurance? You want to hope after you die? This is the standard. You've got to be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. And Jesus uses the same word and says, if you want to be perfect, if you want to be completely committed and whole to God, this is what you must do. And notice what Jesus says to him. Jesus moves from external conformity to the law to the nature and posture of this man's heart. And he gave, gives him three commands Go sell what you possess, go and sell all of your possessions. Go get on eBay and put all the pictures on there and get rid of them. And then once you've done that, number two, you give to the poor. Take everything you got from selling your possessions and you give it to the poor. Now, this man had probably already given to the poor because that was what devout religious people did in that day. But notice what Jesus says in the text. Give to the poor and exchange your earthly treasure for treasure in heaven. It's different. You're rich in earthly treasure. I want to make you rich in heavenly treasure. And then notice the third command. Come, follow me. And friends, this is really the emphasis in the text. Come, follow me. It's the answer to his first question in verse 16. Do you see it? Good teacher, what must I do to obtain eternal life? Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Now, Jesus wasn't issuing a universal command for all of us to sell all of our possessions as a requirement to enter the kingdom of heaven. Rather, Jesus was dealing with this man individually, just as he deals with you individually. And by telling this man to sell his possessions, Jesus was forcing him to examine the condition of his heart and to see what he truly loved That's the point. Jesus knew that he did not have first place in this man's heart and life. That possessions were this man's God. And that's why Jesus said to him, You're serving the wrong God. Get rid of your false God. Get rid of every evidence of your false God. And come and follow me. Now, Jesus had already spoken of a divided heart in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 24. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God in money. And that's what he was saying here. You've got a divided heart, young ruler. You say you love God, but really your love is what you have. And if you want eternal life, you get rid of your false lesser God, and you come, and you follow me. Paul warned Timothy about the same danger of a divided heart. This is what he said in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmless desires. They plunge people into ruin and destruction. Do you hear that, friends? When you have the wrong God, it plunges you into ruin and destruction. It puts you in a snare. It deceives you. It binds you up. And he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it's through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with pain. It destroys Jesus was not calling this man from treasure. He was calling him to treasure. He was calling him away from the world to something better. He was calling him to something that he could never lose, away from something he was most definitely going to lose. Jesus described this exchange from lesser treasure to true treasure In Matthew 13, verses 44 and 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Sold all that he had and bought it for true treasure, for real treasure, for lasting treasure. Paul described the, chain, the exchange that took place in his life in Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. He had it all and he counted it all as nothing, as loss for the sake of getting Jesus. That for Paul, there was no comparison between what he had And what he had in Jesus. And he says for his sake I have suffered the loss of all things. And count them as rubbish. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. But that which comes through faith in Christ. He exchanged it all for Jesus. And that's what Jesus was calling this man to do. And that's what Jesus calls you and me to do, to exchange it all for him. Oh, friends, this destroys cultural Christianity. And and by the way, if you haven't been paying attention, cultural Christianity is destroyed. It's no longer acceptable to be a Christian in the culture. No longer acceptable. And so if you're still living that kind of Christian life, what Jesus is saying this to this man, he is saying to you. Notice how he responds to Jesus' commands in verse 22. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Matthew 10.22 says that he went away disheartened. Luke 18.23 says he became Very sad. He went away grieved because although he came to Jesus for eternal life, look at what he did. He left without the very thing that he was seeking for. He desired what he had above what he didn't have. He wanted to gain salvation, but not as much as he wanted to keep his property. The man knew. That rejecting Jesus' invitation had eternal consequences. And he left disheartened. Sad. Very sorrowful. I love how Warren Wiersbe described him. Listen, this is worth coming to church for today. Unless this rich ruler eventually turned to Christ, he died without salvation. One of the richest men in the cemetery. That's it. That's it. Jesus said it this way, what will it profit you if you gain the whole world and in the end lose your soul? Your soul is what outlasts you in this life, friends. What would it profit you if you were buried next door in that cemetery and you had the biggest mausoleum in the cemetery and you died and were put in that mausoleum without knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior? That would be the saddest commentary on your life. Oh, I got the biggest place where the dead people are. I've got it. This is how great I was on earth. But little do you know, and we should put a sign out there beside it I'm spending eternity in the darkness of hell. Because I wouldn't exchange fake treasure for real treasure. He walked away with his bank account full and his soul empty. He didn't want Jesus as Lord, but he sure did want him as Savior. And I'll remind you, friends, you can't have Jesus the way you want him. You take him the way the Bible says he is, and the Bible says he is both Savior and Lord. Lord. And if you don't believe in Him as your Savior for salvation, and you don't obey Him as Lord, you don't have the same Jesus of the Bible. So, what are we to do with this? Because I can see by your squirming, you're ready to get out from under it. And I'll just remind you that the reason some of you may be squirming is because the text is identifying something in your life. So what do we do with it? Well, Jesus said in Luke chapter 14 and verse 33 that anyone who does not renounce all that he has cannot be his disciple. Cannot. Cannot be his disciple. If you don't renounce all of your old life, you cannot be one of his disciples. Do you know what it means? It means that there is a cost to becoming a Christian. It costs you something to follow Jesus. Jesus. It costs you something to enter the kingdom of heaven. You must forsake your sin and give your complete allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Daniel Doriani said it this way. If wealth is not our God, something else is. But the Lord asks everyone to give up something. There is a cost to discipleship for everyone. And everyone must give up the God he worships. It costs you something to come to the kingdom. And for some of us, the supreme obstacle to salvation might indeed be your possessions, as it was for this rich young ruler. You may have deceived yourself and not realized, apart from this text that you're trusting in, your bank account, your retirement account, all the things that you possess and own to give you security. And this text flies in the face of that, and it tells you that there is no lasting security in those things. And so you might be like the rich young ruler, and possessions may be the obstacle keeping you from entering the kingdom of heaven. It might be your career. You may be sold out to climb the ladder, to... Get all the things that come with your career. That is your first allegiance. That is your first love. That is what you wake up to every day. It's what you live for every day. You've sacrificed your marriage for it. You've sacrificed your family for it. You're sacrificing your eternal life for it. It may be your career. Oh, listen, friends. It may be your non-Christian boyfriend or girlfriend. It may be your living arrangement outside of marriage that is keeping you from surrendering wholly to Christ. And I would say to you this morning, if you're a Christian, what are you doing dating a non-Christian? You're in disobedience to God's Word. Like, why are you even considering that? At the outset, you're disobedient. How would God ever bless that? And it's, it's stumbling you. It's causing you an obstacle to Christ. Oh, you don't think it is, but I'm telling you this morning, based on the authority of the Word of God, any time you're in disobedience to the Word of God, it is an obstacle to God. And so it's your relationships, thinking that you know better than God and His Word, and it's your obstacle. It's your sin that you love. It's your sin that you hide deep in the deepest, darkest part of your soul, and you come to church and you act like everything's great, but you're cherishing it, you're cuddling it, you're not killing it. And it's an obstacle. You're not in a right relationship with God because of the sin that you're loving instead of hating. It might be your sports. Like everything else in your life has top priority over Jesus Christ. And really, at the end of life, when you're standing before the judgment seat of Christ, is that the answer that you want to give? This text demands that we ask what we're refusing to renounce to come to Jesus If you've tuned out everything else I've said, would you hear these last words? Salvation is not a prayer to pray. Salvation is not a walk down the aisle. Salvation is not a taking a pastor by the hand. Salvation is a complete surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ as both Savior and Lord. It is letting go of everything in your past and giving it all to Jesus This is what it means to be a Christian. You love God. You love the things of God. You love the people of God. You love the Word of God. And it's really simple, friends. If you don't love the Word of God, if you don't love God, if you don't love being around the people of God, if you've just prayed a prayer and there's no change in your life, if you just walked an aisle, if you just got baptized because all of your friends got baptized, and there's been no life change in you, there's been no direction, Or purpose in your life. Why do you think you're a Christian? The rich young man refused Jesus and went away sorrowful. Will you refuse him? Will you refuse Jesus today? And leave sorrowful? You came into this room with needs. You came into this room with desires. You came into this room with emptiness. Will you leave sorrowful? Or will you run and kneel before Jesus as Savior? And Lord, let's pray.